so I want to welcome you all. I'm in Venice, California. Thank you all for joining us today. Uh, we're absolutely delighted to have such a large turnout for Dr. Kalman Weiser's talk, The Astonishing and Future of Yiddish in Universities. My name is Miri Coral, and as director of the California Institute for Yiddish Culture and Language, I've had the privilege over the last 20 plus years of introducing hundreds of topics and speakers, every one of which revealed a unique facet of the astonishingly rich Yiddish heritage. <clears throat> the topic today is of special personal interest to me because like some of you attending today, I teach Yiddish at university. Um, <clears throat> and it was a university many decades ago that I was first introduced to the surprising complexities of Yiddish grammar. But even if you're not an instructor or a past or present university student of Yiddish, I think you'll be surprised to find that this topic <clears throat> has a much wider perspective and meaning than you would ever imagine. I'm very grateful for the co-sponsorship of the Toronto UJA Committee for Yiddish, especially my counterpart, Vivian Felsen, uh, because it was through that organization that I first heard Professor Weiser speak on this topic in a beautiful erudite Yiddish. Today, of course, uh, we're gonna be hearing it in English just because uh, we think that it will be more understandable to many more people. I also want to thank Del Nisto, Los Angeles, for being our Zoom webinar host today, and Zachary Golden in particular, who is the behind the scenes technical director. We're so pleased to have people joining from many places across North America and the globe. And, you know, you can keep uh, feeling free to type where you're from uh, in the Q&A. We're aware that you can watch the recording another time, or maybe that's what you're doing um, down the road, but even though we can't see each other, we're glad that you're here and that there are, um, what, at least a hundred like-minded people watching right now. It's really fantastic. So thank you. Thank you all for being with us today. None of this would be possible without the support um, of California Yiddish Institute donors and members, and I thank all those who have given your support. If you value programs such as these that inspire all of us with the complexity and creativity of Yiddish culture, please do consider visiting the cycle website and clicking on the membership donation button. I want to briefly mention that we have several programs coming up uh, that might be of interest uh, in April and May. April 28th, which is also Yom HaShoah uh, at 7.30 p.m. LA time, we're partnering with Long Beach Jewish Community Center to bring you a program entitled To Light Our Way, Yiddish Songs and Poetry of Resistance and Resilience with Cantor Sharon Bernstein and special guest Mike Bernstein. And on Sunday, May 22nd, uh, also at 11 a.m., Hindcast Forecast, how the Yivo Vilna digitization project helps us grasp our present and future. 
which is a tale of rescue and recovery of precious treasures, um, as told by the director of Evo Archives, Dr. Stephanie Halpern. So those those will be posted on our on our website, and if you're on our mailing list, you'll get notifications about these events and other upcoming events. So it's my pleasure to uh, introduce our speaker, uh, Professor Kalman Weiser, who will be speaking for about 40, 45 minutes. Uh, and then we'll have about 15 minutes for questions. So at that point, or even beforehand, you're welcome to type any questions in the Q&A. Uh, which is at, you know usually shown at the bottom of your screen, and we'll try to get to as many relevant questions as possible. So Professor Weiser is the Silber Family Professor of Modern Jewish Studies and is currently the acting director of the Koshitsky Center for Jewish Studies at York University in Toronto. The latest book he edited is Key Concepts in the Study of Antisemitism. And other books include Jewish People, Yiddish Nation, Noah Prelutsky and the Focus in Poland, which came out in 2011 and explores the rise and fall of the nationalist movement on behalf of Yiddish in Russia and Poland until World War II. Um, his other book is Yiddish, a Survey and a Grammar. And he recently completed a book manuscript about Max Weinreich and Solomon Birnbaum and their German colleagues who became Nazis tentatively, which is touched upon in this talk today, titled Confronting Hitler's, I mean, the, the book manuscript is entitled Confronting Hitler's Professors, Yiddish Scholars and the Holocaust. So now it is my great pleasure to introduce Professor Kalman Weiser. I wish this wasn't your last talk for us this year, uh, but uh, so, so it is, and uh, we very much look forward to it. Thank you in advance, Kalman. Thank you so much for the, the very kind introduction. And thank you to all of you for tuning in today. I'm broadcasting from my living room. Uh, it, feel like, it feels like the pandemic is maybe coming to an end, but uh, Zoom has its benefits. Uh, I'd like to thank the organizers, of course, Miri and Zach, uh, the California Institute, of course, co-sponsor here in Toronto, the Committee for Yiddish, Vivian. Uh, thank you so much. This is a real pleasure to be able to talk to so many people about a topic that I'm really passionate about. Uh, as Miri said, this is tied into the research for my book about Yiddish scholarship in the Holocaust. And uh, it's also a passion and a partly biographical as a professor who deals with Yiddish. Uh, so I'm going to talk to you, I'm gonna show you my screen in a second, but before I get to that, I'm going to say, this was an outgrowth of a talk I gave during a Holocaust Education Week in Toronto. One of the paradoxes I'll be exploring is how the rise of Yiddish studies as a field is linked to the Holocaust, as you'll see. Um, and I'll be talking about mainly, I'll be talking about the history on the whole, but focusing on the post-World War II history of Yiddish studies in the university with an emphasis on the contributions of Max Weinreich and Solomon Birnbaum for reasons that will become very clear in a few minutes. So let me share my screen and I will get to it. Okay, Zach, uh, can you see my screen properly? Yeah, it's, it's full size. Fantastic. Uh, 
I'll start my clock so I know how long I'm talking. Okay, great. And I'll get rid of my, my head from the side of the screen. The cover, of course, of this is College Yiddish, the famous textbook that appeared in the late 1940s, written by Uriel Weinreich, who was then 23 years old, who was the first professor of Yiddish at Columbia. On the left is his father, Max, about whom I'll be talking, who was the first professor of Yiddish at City College, who really introduced Yiddish to North American universities. Of course, on the right is Columbia. And there is, well, actually, that's the first year that I taught Yiddish at Columbia. It happens just to be that it's on the cover of College Yiddish. But there are ever, if you look closely, you'll see several other faces. Probably some of them are familiar to you because it's the older, younger, and even older generations of Yiddish studies. Because pretty much everybody who, is, who becomes a professor of Yiddish spent time at Columbia University in the famous YIVO summer program. But that's going to be, that's something for later today. So let me move on. Okay, so let me begin with this fundamental paradox. It's really after the Holocaust with the de significant decline of Yiddish post 1939 that Yiddish comes to the fore or really finds a place in universities around the world, first in North America and then elsewhere. Now this in some ways as obvious, maybe it's not such a paradox. In other ways, it's perhaps a surprise. So let me run you through, through some statistics first so this makes some sense. We have a tendency quite often to think that the Holocaust was the death toll for Yiddish language and culture. And of course, it was a tremendous blow that could never be recovered from. But if we look at the numbers, there were probably something like 11 million speakers of Yiddish in 1939 either full speakers, people who are using it most of the time, or people who had a passive knowledge. This is our approximate figures throughout the world. After, the, after World War II, we estimate the number of Yiddish speakers was somewhere between five and six million, which is quite still quite sizable around the world. And if you're looking through YIVO, the Adias, the newsletter of YIVO as I am right now, systematically year by year, you'd see the tremendous amount of cultural activity, not only in the United States, but also in South Africa, Israel, South America, parts of Europe. There was, there was much going on with Yiddish culture in the 1940s and 1950s. Of course, the accelerated, we see the accelerated decline of Yiddish as an everyday spoken and community and home language in this period. This is of course, after the Holocaust, also due to the suppression of Soviet Yiddish culture and accelerated language shift, which is a phenomenon not only in the Soviet Union, but pretty much everywhere around the world. So much so that by the 1960s, we estimate that there are about 3 million Yiddish speakers. Now, of course, this does not mean the end of Yiddish culture at this time. There are publications for adults. There's a broad network of cultural institutions around the world including here in North America, but there is a very marked decline of Yiddish in the younger generation. Children are less and less being raised in Yiddish speaking homes, being sent to Yiddish language schools. And this is pretty much a phenomenon everywhere outside of Haredi, usually Hasidic circles. Uh, just to give you an example of what I'm talking about, by the 1940s, it was noticed that camps like Kinder, Kinderland and Boiberg, the Yiddish camps in the New York region, that the children often did not speak Yiddish or spoke it poorly, which meant that the camp counselors needed to speak more and more English with them. And the same phenomenon was noted in the after-school supplementary schools in North America. 
or at least in the United States. The, there were somewhat better circumstances in smaller communities outside the US. Uh, for Americans, you often think of the America as, as normative, when in many ways, America is the exception to the rule, but it just has so many Jews. Uh, the experience of Jews outside the United States in places like Mexico City, Buenos Aires, Montreal, and a few other places, there you see Yiddish as an intergenerational language, a language that children are still learning, at least as a second language, holds on for a much longer period, at least until the 1970s. And of course, the map here is simply showing you the losses before the populations before World War II. And of course, you know the history, most of the Jews who die in the Holocaust die on Eastern European soil. Either they're from Eastern Europe, which is the case of most of them, or they're transported to Eastern Europe to be killed. And of course, Yiddish is one of the primary victims of the Holocaust. Now, I wanna take you through a very brief history of Yiddish scholarship before I get to the 20th century. Now, this is some things I've told you before if you've been with us in previous lectures, so I, forgive me, but it's important. The origins of modern Yiddish scholarship really are in the 16th through the 19th centuries. It begins not as a Jewish scholarly interest for the most part, but as a Christian German scholarly interest. There's a series of Christian Hebraists, missionaries and, and criminologists who are working on Yiddish in these centuries. Now, the reasons might be obvious, but I'll share them anyway. Christian Hebraists are scholars of the Bible who are interested in learning Hebrew in order to read the Bible in its original. They realize that Jews have their own Bible translations, that the Jews' spoken language is full of Hebrew, and they're interested in learning Yiddish as a shortcut to learning Hebrew. And they produce some of our first, for lack of a better word, Yiddish textbooks and studies of Yiddish literature. Usually they would, append, they would append these to textbooks or guidebooks to learning Hebrew for their students. It's not long before missionaries caught on and thought they could use Yiddish as a tool to reach Jews because they don't know Latin and they don't know German, or at least they don't can understand written German. Criminologists by the 19th century in German lands realized that a lot of Yiddish words have made it into the thieves' cant, so-called Rotwelsch used by German thieves because there's a certain amount of interaction between Jewish and non-Jewish thieves. They understand that Yiddish, they may not call it Yiddish, but we'll call it Yiddish, that the spoken language of the Ashkenazic Jews is not the same as the thieves can't, but they realize there's a contribution there. So that's really where we see the origins of modern Yiddish scholarship. In fact, there are university professors by the 18th century teaching Yiddish in German universities, usually in the theological faculty. In the 19th century, Jews begin to take a more serious interest in Yiddish. It's not a coincidence. They take a more serious interest at the time that Yiddish is declining in Central and Western Europe. As they cease speaking Yiddish and start learning German, they start taking an interest in Yiddish. Now, the interest they take is very particular. This is mainly associated with the Wissenschaft des Judentums movement which is the beginning of the modern secular study of Jewish language, history, and culture. They have a practical goal for the most part. Leopold Sunz is one of the important figures. He studies the origins of Jewish names in order to prove that there's no such thing as a Jewish name or a Christian name, because there are certain people in German society who want to forbid Jews from taking on Christian names. 
So he needs to demonstrate that there are no Jewish or Christian names. This requires him to study Yiddish names and Yiddish naming schemes. He makes one of our fundamental early contributions to this. He also studies along with some other colleagues, aspects of what we call old Yiddish literature, not with the intent of preserving Yiddish, but with the intent of understanding the Jewish past. In fact, his attitude toward Yiddish is quite negative. He'd prefer that it disappeared. It's seen as an impediment on Jews, Jews' path to emancipation. Now there's a new turn in events in the late 19th century with the rise of historical linguistics and German nationalism, where Germanists, students, students or academics who are studying German philology are interested in understanding the history of the language and also tracing the languages spread throughout Europe. Remember, there's not a German country, a single Germany, until a unified Germany appears in 1871. And even then, there were German speakers outside of this unified Germany. So they're interested in German throughout the world, throughout Europe at least. Um, they see Yiddish mainly as some kind of fossilized German that holds clues to the history of the development of German. They know that it's being spoken in Eastern Europe. They don't see it as a living language, or at least that's not what interests them. They want to study German in order to gain a knowledge into the history, study Yiddish to gain a knowledge into the history of German. Now, by the late 19th century, we begin to see the first PhDs, the first dissertations being written by, about Yiddish in German universities, usually by German Jews who don't know the language, they don't speak it, they're working from literary texts, they don't know Slavic languages, they don't know Hebrew, so they have a very limited perspective, but they can use the tools of German linguistics to apply it to Yiddish. So that's where we first get it in the university, really, in the, in the late 19th century, what we might call really contemporary studies of Yiddish. The next move is Eastern Europe. We have the Yiddishist movement. So on the left here in the photo, you see an old book produced in the pre-modern era, or I should say the early modern era, for teaching Christian Hebraists and their students how to learn, how to read and write Yiddish. On the right, you see the famous Chanlevitz Conference of 1908. The Chernobyl Conference was the first Yiddish language conference held in what's now Ukraine, the city of, well, then called Chernobyl. It was in the Bukovina in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It brought together Yiddish scholars, or really amateur Yiddish scholars, because no one was a professor of Yiddish at this time, and Jewish cultural figures and politicians who wanted to standardize Yiddish. This was an outgrowth of the movement that wanted to research Yiddish for Yiddish's sake, saw it as a Jewish national language, saw it as a language that needed to be carefully uh, cultivated to be on par with any European language, and also saw this as necessary, necessary to standardize the language, to produce a dictionary, to produce a grammar, to prove to the authorities and to Jews themselves that this was a language on par with European languages so that Jews could be granted national cultural rights in the Austro-Hungarian empire and hopefully elsewhere. The way you showed in Austria-Hungary that you were a nationality, that as an ethnic group with rights to certain state subsidies for culture, is you wrote on the census, my language is X. And that language had to be recognized by the authorities. So you had to demonstrate that Yiddish was a bona fide language and not simply a local Jewish dialect of German. So this is the goal of the early Yiddishist movement, as well as, of course, just to create a modern Yiddish culture in general as the cement that bound together the Jewish people with the decline of religious, uh, religious uh, consciousness amongst Jews by the modern era. 
Now, something really remarkable happens in World War I. Uh, World War I brings German troops to Poland and Lithuania, where Germans, including German Jews, encounter Eastern European Yiddish speakers in large numbers for the first time. Now, you see in the middle, you see a picture of traditional Eastern European Jews, and the street, of course, you see passing German soldiers. And this provoked a number of interesting responses. I'll just touch upon this briefly. The so-called Ostjuden, the Jews of the East, were alternately seen by some as the authentic Jews, as a model for German Jews who felt they had lost their true Jewish authentic identities with acculturation and language shift in the 19th century. There were those, however, who saw them as parasites and wanted very much to prevent these poor people from from emigrating into Germany, either during the war or after the war. And there were others who saw this as an opportunity to expand German influence into Eastern Europe, that these were people who spoke a closely related language. It was a German dialect, proof of their loyalty to German culture, despite the fact that their ancestors had either fled or been forced out of Germany in the medieval era, that we could teach them German in school, and that either they would switch to German eventually, or they would be diglossic. They'd have you know, German as their high language for official functions and Yiddish as their dialect they spoke at home. Something like you might say in Switzerland where you use standard German for certain functions and for everyday functions you use Basel dialect or something like this. Uh, there was a response from the Jewish national movement in Eastern Europe that fought against this, wanted recognition of Yiddish as a national language of the Jews Eventually, Yiddish was recognized as a language appropriate for schools in occupied territories. German scholars were dispatched also to create dictionaries, multilingual dictionaries, like you see on the one on the right. German, Polish, Russian, Belarusian, Lithuanian, Latvian, Yiddish, right? Because the German officials and the German occupation authorities had to deal with the speakers of all these languages. And all the fetters were really released on Yiddish publishing. So in many ways, despite all the hardship of the war, this is a positive period for the rise of Yiddish in Eastern Europe. It also demonstrated an interest in learning Yiddish. Uh, on the left, you see the first modern European grammar, scientifically founded grammar of Yiddish by Solomon Birnbaum, which he wrote, he proposed it to a language company that produced textbooks for self-learning. His father had a few books on learning languages. He decided he'd model it after this. So he wrote one for Yiddish. He himself was from Vienna, but he'd learned Yiddish because he'd gone to high school in Chernovitz. And his father was Nathan Birnbaum, a famous Jewish nationalist, whom you'll see in just a moment. In any case, he wrote this really during World War I. In fact, he was editing it in the trenches. He was a soldier during World War I. He was shot in the neck. He finished the book after being shot, in fact, while recuperating in a hospital. Quite a remarkable story. This has become a classic of German speakers learning Yiddish, the first major textbook for Yiddish published in a European language. Now, this brings us into a new period, the 20s and the 30s. Germany is really the hotspot for studying Yiddish in the 20s and 30s at an academic university level. Now, there are a few universities that have begun to introduce Yiddish already, but it's really far and, how should I say, few and far between, it doesn't have much resonance. So for instance, as far as I know, the first university to introduce Yiddish is the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1916. There was a professor there, an American Jew, who had another field of study, but saw there was an interest, uh, introduced Yiddish. 
You remember the University of Wisconsin was one of those universities that did not have quotas on Jews at a time that many American universities had quotas on Jews. There are rumors, I've even seen it in the Warsaw Press from 1916, that the Columbia University introduced Yiddish in 1916 also, but this seems to be founded on a misunderstanding. Columbia was giving courses for immigrants about citizenship in Yiddish. It wasn't, hadn't yet introduced Yiddish language courses. That would come about 30 years later, 35 years later. A number of Eastern European academics or aspiring academics came to Germany in the 20s and 30s. Uh, Weimar Germany was of course quite liberal. There were a few new universities that take, took in Eastern European Jews, made it easier for them, even if they didn't have the right credentials. It was hard to bring their high school diplomas and their university diplomas often from revolutionary Russia, and they facilitated this. There's about 12, 12 to 13 dissertations that are produced about Yiddish in the first part of the 20th century, from about 1900 until 1936. The last dis uh, dissertation about Yiddish is produced in Germany by, um, by Yechiel Fischer, who later moved to Israel in 1936. But among those people who did their dissertations in Germany were Birnbaum, who you see standing on the left, he's the man standing. His father is to the right of him, that's Nathan Birnbaum, the famous champion of Zionism, then later Yiddishism, and then later Jewish Orthodoxy. The young boy is Jacob Birnbaum, uh, Sol Nathan Solomon's son, who was the one of the founders of the movement for Soviet Jewry in the 1960s in New York. It's an illustrious family that lives here in Toronto. In the middle is Max Weinreich. Max Weinreich came in 1919 from Vilna, which was his adopted home country, his, his adopted, I should say, hometown. He was actually from Courland in Latvia, part of the Russian Empire, where he also was raised in German, but learned Yiddish as a teenager and became, how shall I say, fascinated with Yiddish and de devoted himself to Yiddish scholarship. They both came to do their dissertations in Germany about Yiddish. On the right is Nuchum Stift. Stift did not come to write a dissertation about Yiddish in Germany, but he was um, one of the many intellectuals who took refuge from the violence in Ukraine and elsewhere in Russia after World War I. There was a huge colony of Jewish intellectuals in Berlin at this time. And this is really, of course, where YIVO takes off, which Stift's ideas, sharing them with other intellectuals. The idea is really taking off around 1924 in Berlin, but of course, Vilna becomes the home of YIVO. Stiff will go back to Eastern Europe. He will go to the Soviet Union a few years later to become an academic there. The point I want to make is that you begin to have these people make, writing dissertations in Germany, in particular about Yiddish. You also get the first position for Yiddish in a European university in the 20th century in Hamburg in 1922, where based on the strength of his grammar, which is read by one of the scholars in the University of Hamburg, Solomon Birnbaum is invited to teach Yiddish language, linguistics, and literature at a time when there's really no place yet for Yiddish in a European university. Of course, not in the Americas either, really. Weinreich will go back to Vilna, where he'll be instrumental in creating YIVO, which really functions very much as a private Jewish university functioning in Yiddish, as well as a national library and language academy. And Stiff will go to the Soviet Union, which will produce Yiddish research centers and training centers for graduate students in Ukraine and in Belarus, right? So it's really the Soviet Union that has the lead in Yiddish studies in the 1920s, but it really begins in Germany.
Now, fast forwarding a bit, we get to the World War II period. The first real full-fledged chair for Yiddish as I know it um, is the University of Vilna. The Soviet Union certainly had positions and research centers, but a chair that was focused on teaching a full curriculum of Yiddish studies and training students is the University of Vilnius. After uh, 1939, with the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and the division of Poland into Soviet and German spheres of influence, of course, we have an independent Lithuania that's granted Vilna, which becomes Vilnius, the Lithuanian name for the same city as its capital. We have about one year from 1939 to 1940 or so, when the Lithuanian government begins to undertake a project with the support of the Jewish community and funding from the Jewish community to create a chair for Yiddish at the University of Vilnius. There is a uh, telegram referendum amongst members of YIVO who should be the chair. It's really a contest between Max Weinreich and Noah Prilutsky. Max Weinreich, by miracle, happened to be in Western Europe in, in September of 1939. He was en route to a conference in Brussels. He's in Denmark at the time. He can't go back to Vilna. He will end up coming to New York in March of 1940. And I'll tell you about this in just a moment. In any case, Noah Prilutsky, who was in Vilna, becomes the professor of Yiddish. And this chair is actually created when the Soviets arrive in the summer of 1940. So for about a year from the summer of 1940 until the German arrival in the summer of 1941 in Vilna, we have this chair operating at the University of Vilnius for Yiddish. At the same time, of course, YIVO is essentially being reduced to a shell of itself under Soviet authority, being introduced into the Soviet academic system and most of its employees being dismissed. It's a rather bittersweet story that perhaps Stephanie Halpern will tell you more about next time. On the right, of course, is YIVO. There you see Max Weinreich with the white shirt standing in the second row. And these are the aspiranten of right before World War II, including the famous Holocaust historian, Lucy Davidovich, who was then uh, Liba Schildkret, a Jewish girl from New York who'd gone to Vilna in 1938 to 1939 to study at YIVO. The, the aspiranten were basically what we call graduate students. They were the future of Yiddish research. And of course they were cut down. And this is one of the major tragedies of the study of Yiddish is that we lost not only the older generation of scholars, but we lost the younger generation of scholars. We lost two to three generations of Yiddish scholars as a result of the Holocaust and of Soviet repression. Now, I wanna talk about the miracles that I've alluded to. And I say miracles in quotation marks because it's miraculous in the general sense, but not in the actual precise sense of the term. We understand how Nathan, how Salman Birnbaum survived the war. We understand how Max Weinreich survived the war and came to New York, but it was really happenstance that enabled them to do this. Solomon Birnbaum was living in Hamburg with his family in 1933, teaching at the university. Here he is with three of his children and his wife. He left in the spring of 1933 and went to England. His wife was from Vienna also, born there, but she grew up in England. He was able to take refuge there. Another son was born, the son David, who lives here in Toronto today. It wasn't easy. It was a very, there's a whole other chapter I could tell you about another time. There was an attempt to create a chair for Yiddish in Weimar, Germany, with Birnbaum as the chair's holder, which ended with the Nazis coming to power. 
And the sad part of the story beyond that is the fact that the people who are trying to, be, to create the chair themselves joined the Nazi party and aided the Nazi party in its genocide of the Jews in various ways. Uh, and then went on to become a famous linguist after World War II. But that's a story perhaps for another day. In any case, Solomon Birnbaum had been, he was desperate economically and otherwise in Germany in 1933. He was assaulted by Nazis more than once. His son, Jacob, whom I spoke about earlier, was attacked by other young boys and dirt was thrust into his mouth. In short, they realized it was time to leave. Solomon Birnbaum projected that in 10 years, there would be almost no Jews left in Germany. He came to England. He worked very hard. Again, based on his reputation, a scholar uh, named Norman Jobson, who was a linguist, approached him, heard he'd come to England, invited him to give some lectures at University College London. Eventually, Jobson, who was very sympathetic to Jews, he wasn't Jewish himself, understood that large numbers of Jews were going to become refugees, invited him to join the faculty of the University of College London, helped to raise funds with the help of the local Jewish community to create two positions for him, one in Hebrew paleography, the study of old Hebrew handwriting, uh, which Birnbaum was really the pioneer in this field. He was really the first person to date the Dead Sea Scrolls about a decade or so later based on the handwriting before they applied uh, carbon dating. He also created for him, helped to create a position for him in Yiddish language. So he had a dual lectureship into the 1960s at the University College London in Hebrew paleography and in Yiddish linguistics. And by the way, only recently, uh, University College London has again become a center for research about Yiddish, particularly about Hasidic Yiddish. There's a whole research group working there. It's quite remarkable the role played that we've forgotten by University College London in the history of Yiddish. His survival is one of the factors that ensured that Yiddish would survive as an academic field. He was a mentor to scholars. He wrote tremendously. He himself was orthodox and therefore wasn't willing to join YIVO because YIVO was a secular institute, but he published in YIVO journals and later gave lectures in the 1970s to graduate students at YIVO. On the right is Solomon, is Nathan, sorry, is Max Weinreich in the middle with his two sons. On the right is the famous Uriel Weinreich, of course, the, perhaps the most famous author of a textbook of Yiddish, a major American linguist. He happened to be with his father in Copenhagen when the war broke out in 1939, came with his father. The mother, Regina, went back to Vilna because the younger son, Gabi, whom you see here, the little boy, was still in Vilna with the grandmother. And they knew war was coming. They had to go and help her. They didn't realize how bad it would become, of course. Max Weinreich never dreamed that he wouldn't be able to see Vilna again. He never went back. He comes six months later with Uriel to New York. Eventually, they managed to bring Gabi and Regina to New York by way of Manchuria and Japan to San Francisco, to New York. And unfortunately, Regina's mother died during the Holocaust. But their, basic, their survival of these two figures would ensure that Yiddish culture as an academic field would survive in the West. Uh, Weinreich immediately set his goals on building the American YIVO, America's small branch, the American division of YIVO, which existed since 1925 in New York, building into the center of the world YIVO organization. Weinreich would become the first professor of Yiddish 
full-time professor, not just someone teaching a course or two in Yiddish, but someone whose mainstay in the university was teaching Yiddish in 1947 at City College in New York. That's why I have YIVO, CCNY. Uh, these are all acronyms for New Yorkers. And Uriel become the first professor of Yiddish in 1952 when they created a chair for Yiddish at, City, at Columbia University. He was about 14 when he came to New York. He was in his early 20s when he became the first chair in Yiddish at Columbia University. But I'm gonna get there a little later. That's a little bit foreshadowing. Now I wanna tell you about what was going on during World War II, the role of Yiddish. Now there's a lot to say obviously about Yiddish during World War II. Uh, I wanna talk about Salman Birnbaum and Max Weinreich's contributions. Uh, I call this here Yiddish in the struggle against Nazism. Now, firstly, Birnbaum's friend Jobson happened to be the director of the Uncommon Languages Department. This was a division of the British Postal Censor Office. He'd been active during World War I. He was called to service again during, in 1939. Um, the goal of this organization was to read all the letters that made it into the hands of British officials, letters that were being circulated through the very broad, very wide British empire. Jobson understood that there would be a lot of circulation of letters in Yiddish. He understood in advance, something that we don't see nowadays so much, that Yiddish was extremely practical. There were going to be large numbers of Jewish refugees. Yiddish would be a strategic language during the war. We can't just have one person who knows Yiddish. He wanted to train multiple people who knew Yiddish to read letters. And Birnbaum, of course, became the chief letter reader for Yiddish. Birnbaum knew other Jewish languages. He was a linguist. He could learn languages quickly. He read languages, he read letters in about five or six Jewish languages, Ladino, Yiddish, uh, and several other ones. In fact, he became a pioneer in the field of, Yiddish Jew of Jewish language research, in part based on what he'd read in these letters and the structural analyses he made. But he also learned about the horrors of what was going on in occupied Europe. He couldn't speak about this publicly because it was confidential, but his sons knew how much, how emotionally shaken he was by all of this, having been teary-eyed from a day's work, reading, knowing of the suffering of Jews behind enemy lines. He also was able to gather a certain amount of information that was of strategic value to the British. For instance, the British were able to use certain amount of information for bombing of targets in Germany and elsewhere not just from Birnbaum's letters, but from the letters of others. I mean, there were dozens of people working on every language you can imagine in these British offices during World War II. He also translated war propaganda for the British. So for instance, you see Duskarango from Britannia, which was the Battle of Britain, which was meant to be circulated, dropped by British bombers over Warsaw, over the Warsaw Ghetto and elsewhere to provide morale, to show the Jews that they were not abandoned. It's not clear whether these were ever dropped, but that was the goal behind this. And there was a series of publications like this. He created terminology of air warfare, which was published in YIVO journals at this time. And he led a personal campaign to save European Jews. He lobbied British MPs to declare Jews British citizens so that the Germans would have to treat them better and wouldn't murder them. Unfortunately, this did not succeed but he spent a tremendous amount of energy on trying to save Jews and using Yiddish as a tool in the battle against Nazi Germany. Weinreich's activities are similar in their goals, but different in their scope and in their nature. First of all, in New York, Weinreich 
read everything he could get his hands on about what was going on in Europe. He collected and analyzed Nazi publications, published early analyses in Yivobletter. These materials would provide the basis of his later book from 1946, Hitler's Professors, that I'll tell you about in just a second. After the war, he was able to obtain Nazi archival materials, largely through the offices of Zolce Tchaikovsky. Tchaikovsky was a YIVO uh, activist, and he was an aspirant before the war, uh, who was in America and then served in the American army. Served, well, he served actually with the French during the war, the French resistance, then he served with the Americans. And he, like other YIVO activists, grabbed whatever they could, and he grabbed a hell of a lot of Nazi documents, archival materials from buildings, wherever he could, and helped to bring it back to New York. There was also a certain amount of materials Weinreich was able to get with the help of the US State Department after the war. At a breakneck pace from 45 to 46, Weinreich wrote Hitler's professors. He actually wrote it in English and only later translated himself into Yiddish because his goal was for this to be used in the proceedings of the Nuremberg trials in 1946. What is it? The part of scholarship in Germany's crimes against the Jewish people. This is the first systematic indictment of the role of German academics in genocide, providing the intellectual legitimization for the genocide of European Jewry. And it was largely forgotten after World War II for decades until really in the 1990s when German scholars began writing about it. And now it's considered a classic because it was way ahead of its time. He also played a very important role, at least from my perspective, a very important role. Most people don't know about this. Uh, he demasked Franz Berenik. Berenik was the first professor of Yiddish in post-World War II Germany. Berenik was a Sudeten German. He was from Czechoslovakia. He'd come to a YIVO conference in 1936. Weinreich and others had shown him around Vilna. He had published about Yiddish in Czechoslovakia. Weinreich held his work in the 1935 YIVO conference as groundbreaking revolutionary. Um, he, didn't, he headed a German research institute during the war. After the war, he came to Weinreich and said, I'd like to reestablish contact with you and other scholars, Jewish scholars. And Weinreich refused. In the 1950s, he wrote a series of articles in the Vorwärts, revealing as best as Weinreich could what he had done during the war. Uh, Weinreich refused to work with German scholars unless they could demonstrate that they, had, they were not complicit in genocide or had not accepted advancement through the hands of the German government. Um, this did not stop Berenik, by the way. He was not able to work with YIVO scholars, but there were other Jewish scholars who did work with him. And he had the first position for Yiddish at the University of Gießen in the 1960s. Now, many Yiddish books were from YIVO that were recuperated after the war that you'll certainly hear about um, in your next lecture from, from the archivist of YIVO. <laughs> they were found in Germany. Uh, here you see the Offenbach um, depot where books were being stored and sorted. Uh, many books where they had duplicates of that were considered less essential for YIVO's library were sent to DP camps because these people were starved for an education, starved for something to read in Yiddish. So many books were sent to the DP camps. But of course, the bulk of the books that YIVO had recuperated that were its position, possessions were brought to New York in the mid-1940s, shortly after the war. 
On the right, you see Yiddish phrase book produced by Solomon Birnbaum. Remember, there are DPs and the aid workers usually don't know Yiddish or don't know it well. So Solomon Birnbaum was commissioned right after the war to produce a Latin letters guidebook to help people to work with the DPs. It's actually, it's a very interesting book to see the state of the Yiddish language and what was considered necessary to help rehabilitate people around 1945, 1946. Again, it's like much like Uriel Weinreich's similar book, Seid uh, in Yiddish, which was produced in the early 1960s, it reveals to us, reminds us how alive Yiddish was in the decades after World War II, even if there had been a huge loss of Yiddish speakers. Now, this brings us really to the rapid unfolding history of Yiddish in the university. So I have to move my head, it got in the wrong place again. Okay, uh, the golden akate I call this Yiddish is a key in the Ashkenazic cultural tradition. Now I already mentioned the University of Wisconsin. Um, I mentioned perhaps that Columbia, but probably didn't have Yiddish prior to World War II. It's really during World War II period that we see Yiddish entering the Western University in a serious way. And this has to do a lot with sympathy for Jews. There was an increase in sympathy for Jews there was also an understanding of the practical value of Yiddish during World War II. So for example, you see the Institut des Hautes-Études, the Free French University in New York introduces Yiddish. Boston University introduces Yiddish. The New School for Social Research introduces Yiddish all during World War II. Now mind you, these are not Yiddish chairs. These are one-offs and two-offs in Yiddish language and literature courses, but it's a serious beginning and there's a serious number of Yiddish scholars, many of them refugees, who are now present in New York by 1940 who can teach these courses. We have the first, I would say, real program in Yiddish, uh, City College in 1947. The chairman of the Department of German and Slavic Languages, Saul Lipson, who was himself from Ukraine, came to New York as a young man or came to the US as a young man, became a professor of German at City College, became quite enamored of YIVO, be became an active member of its board, used his influence to help get a position from Max Weinreich at City College. Now, if you wonder how YIVO functioned, how Weinreich supported himself, remember, YIVO is not a very wealthy institution in 1947. This is Weinreich's day job. He's teaching Yiddish, also occasionally teaching German, occasionally teaching Russian. And if you read his archive, you can see the insights, the blue books of the students, their exams, their essays, what they were getting out of this. For them, this was a very important moment in shoring up their Jewish identities right after World War II. In fact, this was a major goal of Weinreich. Uh, Weinreich understood that Yiddish lacks prestige in the United States. And the key to gaining prestige for Yiddish is to introduce it to the university. And I'm gonna paraphrase him. He said, it's one thing if your immigrant father tells you to study Yiddish. It's another thing if a professor at Columbia University tells you that Yiddish is worth studying. And then the American born generation that places so much faith in the American universities will begin to take it seriously. Weinreich also believed that Yiddish was a key to solving the psychological problems of American Jewry. And this is, of course, from Weinreich's perspective, as essentially a Yiddishist Jewish nationalist from Eastern Europe, a champion of Jewish cultural autonomy. He believed that American Jewish youth was very much ignorant of its background, of its culture. Most of them had no Jewish education. They spoke a broken Yiddish at best. 
They were very ashamed of their Jewish origins quite often. Yet they experienced anti-Semitism, not on the scale, of course, that we know in Europe. They experienced quotas, and they also tended to congregate together. Now, he saw this congregating together as a natural quality. People of an ethnic group naturally get together, but American Jews tended to condemn this as parochialism, as segregation. He felt that Yiddish culture was the best key to shoring up their identities, to making them whole, to make the Jewish and the human in them one, because Yiddish literature is the perfect exemplar of this fusion of the specific and the universal in the Jewish tradition. He envisioned creating what he and Saul Lipson called a videvux, that is a regrowth, a recrudescence of Yiddish researchers. Uh, they hope to cultivate a small core, maybe 10, 20, 30, but that number would multiply in every generation. He didn't believe you could re-vernacularize Yiddish in the United States. Remind you, there were still many Yiddish speakers, but he, including young people, but he didn't envision that the future of US Jewry was exclusively in Yiddish. He understood that you needed to use English, at least initially, to reach these people. But he believed that you could win young people over to Yiddish and you could teach them something about themselves, that it was actually, it was their own enlightened self-interest that would get them interested in Yiddish and exploring the depths of Ashkenazic culture. It's the key to the entirety of the Jewish tradition as far as he was concerned. Some would learn Yiddish, fewer would learn Hebrew, but this would be the beginnings. American Jewry had to step up and assume the mantle of world Jewish leadership now that he could no longer rely on Eastern European Jewry, but it was very poor in intellectual forces in the sense that there weren't enough academics focused on Jewish research. There were many Jews who were academics, but there, were, there wasn't a highly developed culture of research about Jewish life as far as he and his colleagues were concerned. In 1948, Saul Lipson managed to create a position for Weinreich at UCLA in the summer. Weinreich came as a visiting professor and he taught graduate courses on Yiddish folklore and linguistics and literature. Um, many of the students were recent arrivals from Europe. Some of them were Americans and a number of students, these are the scholarship winners from Evo, a number of students who were from California joined them. And it was quite a phenomenon. You can read about it on the internet. Mark Smith has written about this. Uh, people would come, large numbers of Jews and others too, would join them to the singing club they would have or to the puppet plays that they did. It was, a, it was sort of a campus phenomenon in 1948. Uh, and that's really the beginning of, of Yiddish at UCLA. Yiddish, of course, exists today. Money was donated for a position in Yiddish by one of Weinreich's students at City College, but it's in 1948 that we have the first time that we have Yiddish at UCLA. Weinreich and Lipson envisaged a series of Yiddish chairs in North America at the point of the compass. They thought there would be one in Canada, either probably in Toronto, maybe at the, probably the University of Toronto, maybe at McGill, but probably at the University of Toronto, also in Mexico, at Mexico City, in California, at UCLA, in New York, at Columbia, or, C, or CUNY, C, uh, CCNY, City College of New York, and in Michigan, most probably at Wayne State. Now, of course, if you fast forward several decades, you'll see that this prophecy, if you want to call it a prophecy, was actually to a large extent fulfilled. We have Yiddish chairs in many of these institutions or at a neighboring institution in these locales at this point. The next place, though, after, uh, after UCLA to introduce Yiddish was Brooklyn College. Later in other CUNY schools, 
Georgetown University introduced Yiddish by 19, the early 1950s. And this is a very interesting story that I can't fully explain yet. I'm researching it. There were intensive Yiddish courses given at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service for American military personnel. Why American military personnel? I don't know. Possibly because there was a need for people working with DPs in the military in the early 50s. You still had DP camps. They were only beginning to close. Possibly that's a reason. Possibly because the US government was pouring money into language study. Why not, if you're pouring money into Swedish, why not pour money into Yiddish also? But this is a research question that we'll have to get to the bottom of. The Hebrew University creates a Yiddish chair in 1951, one of our first Yiddish chairs. It tried to create a position for Yiddish in 1927 with funding from one of the uh, Jewish dailies in New York. But this was defeated by the anti-Yiddishist faction of professors at the university. But after the war, by 1947, there was a realization that Yiddish is no longer a danger. Hebrew was sufficiently established, and this was a culture that people feared might disappear. And this leads to the motion to create two chairs, one for Yiddish, one for Ladino. The one for Ladino would not be created yet, not in the 1950s, but the one for Yiddish emerged. Max Weinreich was offered the position. He considered it for about six months. He actually, you know, I know this from my research, he actually took it quite seriously and struggled with it, but he decided that it was best that he stay in New York for the sake of YIVO. It was also too difficult for him to move at, the, at this point, he was in his 50s, to give up everything he'd built in New York to transfer himself to another country yet again. And of course, Max Weinreich was not a Zionist. He was a diaspora nationalist. He was not anti-Zionist at this point in his life but he wasn't willing to go to the Hebrew University where he was afraid that Yiddish would be treated as a foreign language, a second rate language, as opposed to a Jewish language, which was what he really wanted. He wanted Yiddish in a Jewish state to be on par, at least in terms of its prestige with Hebrew in the university. His son was given the position at Columbia University funded by Atran. Frank Atran was a Bundist from Eastern Europe who made a fortune in the United States and donated a lot of this money to Yiddish cultural endeavors, including the creation of the Yiddish chair in 1952 at Columbia University. This was Weinreich, Uriel Weinreich's first position in academia, it was a chair. And a few years later, he gained tenure, later became the head of the linguistics department at Columbia. And this really establishes the long history of Columbia University being intimately tied with Yiddish. Of course, after his death, the Yiddish language summer program would be established at Columbia in the late 1960s. In Mexico, we have also a position in Yiddish being created in the 1950s. So this is really the beginnings. By the 1960s, we have a chair created at Brandeis University. And in the 1960s and the 70s, with the growth of ethnic studies in the American university, we have more and more positions for Yiddish. And this will bring me to the next sort of series of paradoxes. Uh, before I get there, I'll just tell you, obviously on the left is Uriel Weinreich, who died unfortunately at the age of 1940, prematurely from cancer, left behind a, re a remarkable legacy, accomplished probably the work of three scholars in one lifetime. On the right is Max Weinreich teaching at City College. Weinreich taught there until retirement from the university in the mid 1960s. Now, 
where is Yiddish taught today and what can I say about that? So let me first tell you about where it's taught today. Uh, there was a survey done, done in the online journal Ingevev recently about where Yiddish is taught in what universities, either language and or literature at all levels. I created this map, it took me quite some time. What you basically see is that Yiddish is taught in over 50 universities and summer programs around the world. It tends to cluster in the East Coast of the United States where you have a very large number of universities with significant Jewish populations. You also see on the West Coast of the United States and you also see it of course in Canada. If you ever read, know anything about Yiddish culture, you know about the disproportionate role that Canadian Jewry plays in Yiddish culture. Reading through Yivel Yedias, you see that every issue, there's the, the, the Canadians are giving money in numbers that it's, it's the amount of money the Canadians are giving to Yivo is shocking considering their numbers. Uh, you have Yiddish positions in places like Montreal, um, Toronto, of course, Winnipeg, the West, Western Canada, in South America and Brazil today. Of course, in Europe, it's clustered in Germany, where there are two chairs in Yiddish since the 1990s. Um, there is Yiddish in France, Yiddish in the countries where Yiddish historically was spoken, Poland, Ukraine. Russia has Yiddish. Of course, uh, the map in the Middle East is not Iraq, it's Israel. It's a little bit hard to see on this map. Uh, the outlier that you might not expect is Japan, right? Uh, Japan has an active interest in Yiddish. And of course you have an active interest in Yiddish in Australia, where a number of Eastern European Jews settled, particularly in Melbourne. Now, Yiddish is taught, as I said, at various levels. It's not, not all chairs. It's where at least there's some Yiddish being taught in those 50 plus universities. There are perhaps more that simply didn't report to that survey. Now, I'm gonna conclude with some observations that we can perhaps talk about later in the Q&A about Yiddish in the contemporary university. Uh, first of all, this is simply a, a cartoon from the Yiddish press showing Frank Atron escorting Yiddish into the university. Uh, Yiddish has gained prestige after the Holocaust. And this is one of the sad paradoxes of it all. It took the death of millions of Yiddish speakers to help Yiddish gain the respect that it has now. Now I know that Yiddish is not respected necessarily by everyone, but it has tremendous respect. It is accepted as a language to an extent that it wasn't 50 years, 60 years ago. I can't do the math. Prior to World War II is what I'm getting at. That's, I guess, that's about 80 years ago. I, uh, I stopped counting in the 1990s, apparently, okay? Uh, Yiddish has much more prestige now. Uh, the growth of Yiddish studies in the American universities is really unparalleled. At the same time that Yiddish has entered the university and become very prestigious because of its association with the university, it has ceased to be, to be a language of widespread use in homes and the community, right? We have this inversion. Uh, Yiddish has become a respected part of the university community. At the same time, it's become an elite language known by academics outside of the ultra-Orthodox world, mainly. It stopped being the folk language. It stopped being associated in many ways with the folk language that it was prior to World War II. Yiddish professors have very uneven linguistic competence and competence in the culture, broadly speaking. Some know a lot, and some just learn Yiddish in university and don't really have fluency. 
So there's a wide range. Some universities have one Yiddish course, one semester, one year, some have a few. Very few universities can provide a full range of Yiddish courses from beginner's Yiddish to advanced Yiddish. This is one of the reasons why anyone who wants to learn Yiddish and become fluent in it really has to work hard traveling around the world, you know, going to intensive Yiddish summer programs, trying to find a community into which to immerse his or herself. Yiddish has become a full citizen in the field of Jewish studies, so much so that there's a whole field Yiddish at the AJS, the big conference for American, the Association of Jewish Studies in North America every year. It's a heritage language, as I was alluding to before, meaning that the emphasis on teaching the language is not on you having a career in the language. The emphasis is on you learning something about this culture. As I said, it's difficult for most people who are learning Yiddish in university today to develop fluency unless they make a very considered effort to, you know, to, for lack of a better word, to nosh from every opportunity they can to learn the language. We also see at the linguistic level, the victory of Yiddish spelling. Uh, Yivo fought hard codifying Yiddish spelling together with the Central Yiddish School Authority, Sishol, in Poland in the 1930s for Yiddish publications and schools to use standardized orthography. And this orthography was not universally implemented. It's gained much greater traction in recent decades. It was a big victory when the Fallwerts in New York, for example, switched to the YIVO spelling in the 1990s. The entry of Yiddish into the classroom has facilitated what we might call in quotation marks, the victory of Yiddish spelling. It's not everywhere. If you pick up a Hasidic newspaper, you're not gonna see Yiddish YIVO spelling, but in the secular sector, uh, this is the main spelling system that you see today. Klal Yiddish, the standardized pronunciation of Yiddish, which is a compromise between dialects that was gaining ground prior to World War II, which really becomes codified in works like Uriel Weinreich's textbook, which then is taught generation after generation in academic settings, really becomes accepted uh, as a norm for academic use as a result of this. Um, you know, we have outside the classroom, we still have living dialects, but at academic conferences and in the classroom, we tend to hear Klal Yiddish. And there was much greater resistance, I would say, to the spread of Klal Yiddish uh, prior to this decline in the number of speakers and the rise of Yiddish in academia. Now, in the 1990s, and I, I am going to end soon, I know I'm talking more than I should, but I'm very excited about this. In the 1990s, we have a very strange thing happening. There's a debate that emerges how should Yiddish be taught? Should Yiddish be taught as a living language and civilization, or should it be taught as a classical language like Aramaic? Now, this debate was never fully resolved. There are some programs that teach it as a living language, some that teach it as a classical language. I think I was part of the last cohort of students at Columbia University that were instructed in a graduate program exclusively in Yiddish as a living civilization. But it's not unique that you can find graduate seminars conducted, but not all of them are conducted in Yiddish today. Probably most of them are not. Yiddish studies is conducted mainly in languages other than Yiddish. Almost all academic publication about Yiddish, language, literature, and so on, is conducted in languages like English, French, Hebrew, Russian, and so on. 
Weinreichen Yivo, of course, wanted Yiddish to be studied by non-Jews, wanted Yiddish to be studied by people for whom it wasn't a native language, wanted it to be part of general academia, but not at the cost that Yiddish become overwhelmingly studied from an outside perspective in a language other than Yiddish. And this is one of the compromises that Yiddish studies has made with its growth in world academia, if you will. But of course, in general, attitudes have changed. Today's Yiddish studies is not part of the Yiddishist movement. We see what we might call the normalization of Yiddish research. We see post-Yiddishist approaches, by which I mean, uh, this is not research to raise recognition for Jews and nationality with rights to their national cultural autonomy. This is not research to raise the prestige of Yiddish and its speakers. This is the same kinds of research about Yiddish that you'd see in any other field with all the skills, methodologies you'd see applied in any other field, which of course means that Yiddish has become very normal in the university. Uh, Yiddish has become internationalized and globalized. People are studying it all around the world. Uh, we have a large number of contemporary scholars from Eastern Europe who are non-Jews, who recognize the role that Yiddish plays in the cultures of those countries like Poland, Lithuania, and Latvia, and Ukraine, and so on. And of course, we see this all around the world. We have Yiddish programs. And we also have Yiddish summer programs in places like Paris, Warsaw, Berlin, and elsewhere. So Yiddish has become truly international. You know, in some ways, again, the goals of Yiddish academia in the early 20th century have been realized to normalize Yiddish in academia with the nationalist goals of this and the use of Yiddish as the language, as the medium of this research and teaching has significantly changed, if not declined. Finally, the last point I'm going to make is we see now in recent decades an increase in research in Yiddish and Haredi, particularly Hasidic communities. This was not a major focus of Yiddish research after World War II, in part, I would say, because it wasn't exactly clear that there was something to research. The Haredi communities were decimated, like every other community. Uh, they were refugees. It took a few generations before Yiddish scholars began to realize that this is where Yiddish is mainly found and that this is worth researching itself. And I would say an increasing share of research about Yiddish in the future will be conducted on the living language and also in the increasing amount of literature being produced in the Haredi communities. So not only Yiddish as a classic language of Eastern European Jewry, Shulmalechem, Peretz, the history of the Soviet research institutes and so on, but also the phenomenon of what's going on with Yiddish in Antwerp, in Monsi, in Tosh, and so on around the world. So it's quite a vibrant field today. On that note, I'm going to thank you for your patience, and I look forward to your comments and your questions. A and dank, Kalman. Wow. Um, ju just a, my, a quick comment of my own about Klal Yiddish is when we get to the spelling of oif. <laughs> um, you know, the, the ubiquitous preposition, which is on, at, uh, two, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's spelled in, in uh, transliteration O-Y-F, but I keep telling students, you have a choice of pronunciation, of, af, oof, right? But it's really not oif. Uh, so that, that to me crystallizes, you know, the whole issue of, of klal, klal Yiddish. 
right? And everyone is pronouncing oif these days. Yeah, this, this was never a, spoken by any anyone speaking Yiddish as a native. Well, that's not exactly true um, in the sense that I mean, you're right; it's not native to any dialect of right. a natural dialect. Right. But Max Weinreich was already complaining, complaining in quotation marks. He was noting in the 1920s that in the secular Yiddish sector, because of the influence of Yiddish spelling and people thinking you should pronounce the way things are written on the page, that life was being heard increasingly at certain presentations. And then it was taught in Yiddish, some of the Yiddish secular schools like in North America. So there's actually, it's, it's not as simple a subject as right and wrong, right? It's a, quite a complicated story. Yeah. Of course, like everything Yiddish and Jewish. And, yeah. Um, okay, so we have uh, a few specific questions about universities. Uh, and uh, one of them is about your university, Kalman, <laughs> which is um, how is Yiddish regarded at York? Uh, I guess this is from a political point of view. Is it as toxic as Hebrew is? Okay, first of all, neither language is toxic. I'm not right. sure why one would assume either language is toxic. Right, I um, think, the, the, yeah, the, I know, that's, that's a, the, um, the word the, used by the questioner. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the debates about Yiddish versus Hebrew are, you know, long died out, uh, right. I think, in universities. Um, any university would be consider itself lucky to have one and or both languages taught. Um, the story with Yiddish at York is complicated, and I, you know, I, I don't want to spend too much time on it because I'd have to tell you about a history of York University. But the, the sad fact of the matter is that we're not teaching Yiddish right now for bureaucratic administrative reasons, mainly. Um, Yiddish is a small language, and North American universities are encountering a decline in the humanities. And across the board, they've been cutting languages. In my university, they only want to teach languages that can reach a certain threshold. About a decade ago, or six to seven years ago, this became particularly prominent, and every year the threshold was changing because it was like the, the ground was shifting or falling from beneath our feet. It became too difficult for me to teach Yiddish because I didn't know if I'd get enough students. I needed to be seconded from my department because I'm not in the languages department, which meant that I wasn't gonna teach Jewish history or something else, something that was, you know, we needed to be taught was gonna be taught. If I didn't get the, you know, a university like York, which is a big state university, you want classes of 20 or more students. You know, Americans, I say Americans, I'm an American, but I've been in Canada for a long time. We often forget that at private universities like Columbia and Harvard with massive endowments, you can have a Yiddish class with four students. You know, why not? At a big state university, you want 20 to 30 students. Uh, and if you don't get them, they cancel the classes if that's the threshold. It became difficult. I would get, I wouldn't have the, I could fear that the class would, class would be canceled and that I'd owe a class to the university if I only got 18 students or if I only got 13 students. Meanwhile, Yale can teach it with four students. So, you know, that's a real disincentive. Of course, we'd like to reintroduce this, but at this point, it would mean me teaching it and me not teaching something else. Uh, it's a, I'd be that person, I'd be happy to talk to you in private. That's a complicated story. And the only way to really solve this problem is with an endowment to create an endowed Yiddish position, which we don't have. You know, something I didn't mention, this is a relevant mentioning that the reason why we, Yiddish takes off in part is not only the greater respect for it and the appreciation for the past after the Holocaust, but because of the affluence of American Jewry. 
American Jews donate money. They donate money to universities. There are Yiddish chairs throughout North America and places that don't historically have huge Yiddish speaking populations because someone felt this is a good place to sponsor Yiddish. Um, the University of Toronto is a chair because the community itself here in Toronto raised money for that position. Uh, if anyone wants to donate money and create a position in Yiddish at York, a, a chair, we would welcome that. Right, yeah. I mean, UCLA, my, my language classes have ranged from you know five to maybe 12. Uh, and the only reason why they can proceed with say five or six is because we have private funding. Yeah, that's, you know, that's the main, the main reason for sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, can, is there anything you can say about Yiddish at Georgetown? Somebody had a question about that um, specifically. Anything more you can add? Uh, about Yiddish at Georgetown in the 1950s? Um, I know who taught it. And I'm going to get his name wrong. I, I, I still, I think it was uh, Bioza. I think as his name was, or Bioza. He was a Polish Jew who was studying to, who was a teacher in the, in the, the uh, DC area. He studied at the Lera Seminar in New York, if I'm not mistaken, um, who died young around 1954. And I think Yiddish ends with his death around 1954. Uh, when Cecil Kuznets was at Georgetown University years ago, Cecil Kuznets, of course, is the well-known historian who wrote this magnificent history of YIVO. Uh, in Europe, that is. It's about the European period in Yivo's history. She was, I believe, trying to create, you know, push, <laughs> help Yiddish to establish itself at the university. Uh, she left, uh, and I don't think Yiddish has really been established at the university since, but I'd be happy to find out that I'm wrong. I know there's a, there's a professor there now from Poland who has an interest in Yiddish. I just don't know whether she's teaching it. Mm -hmm. And there, there's a question from uh, Magali Bertrand um, about giving some references about the debate on teaching Yiddish as a classical language or a living language. I would say, look in the press in the 1990s, such as uh, the New York Times Magazine. I believe there was an article by Ruth Weiss in the 1990s. Um, there's a whole series of articles in the Fallbets, um when the, um, I remember Rachmiel Peltz wrote in letters to the forward, the forward, the English forward that is, uh, in the 1990s, when Yiddish was changing at Columbia, uh, when there was becoming a different kind of program that wasn't focused on Yiddish as a living language. Uh, this is really when I entered Yiddish academia as a student. So I was living it and I was reading it at the time, but I can't give you the exact years and titles offhand, but it's there, there's a lot of it. Uh, a question about whether Yiddish studies is still related to Jewish culture today, considering that there are more non-Jewish students becoming Yiddish teachers. That's an excellent question. I don't um, know if you much about that. Of course, I'd say absolutely. I mean, how could it not be, right? I mean, you're what are you what are you studying? You're studying the people and their culture, right? Uh, doesn't matter who's teaching it. Uh, that's what they're studying. So. I mean, it's quite interesting that, you know, there was, particularly after the, you know, it's, it's hard to talk about these things, knowing what's going on in contemporary Ukraine. Um, you know, our hopes were so bright after the end of communism for that region of the world. 
And part of what was so bright was this interest in the various minorities that lived in these countries, like Poland, prior to World War II. And you had the you know, explosion of interest in Jewish studies in this region and positions being created. So I, 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 for, I forget what my point is, but my point, I guess, was that there is a real interest amongst academics teaching this stuff who are not Jewish in Jewish life. They learn the language, they study the literature, they study the history. There is dedicated to be pre preserving and understanding and promoting as the Jewish scholars are. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, just, just of, of note, I teach a class at UCLA on Yiddish film, uh, you know, Yiddish film as, and uh, literature as a lens through seeing what happens to a culture over the course of a century, you know, from the late uh, 19th century till, till the present. And most of my students, most of my 45 students are not Jewish at all. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they though wind up learning a lot about Jewish culture. They can't help it. That's, that's, that's yeah. what it's about, yeah. And some of them, of course, show more interest than others, so. Yeah, it's, it's kind of remarkable when you read the blue books of the Columbia students non-Jewish students who in the late 40s and the early 50s, after the Holocaust, want to know about Jews. And that's why they're taking Yiddish. Yeah, yeah. Um, you have many thanks in, in, in the Q&A, but there's also one specific question. Is there any advice that you might have for a student just beginning to research PhD programs in Yiddish studies? <laughs> yes. The advice is get the best funding package. Right? <laughs> get the best funding package you can. <laughs> I mean, it's a very broad question. You know, you know, obviously different people have different interests, but that, that's the advice I would give to you know, anybody starting a PhD program. If you're thinking about the long run, go to a place where you can get the best funding and that has the best resources for what you want. Yeah. Um, there's... Um, ah, a very, a very interesting question about with the introduction of Zoom. This is from uh, Henry, Henry Slutsky. Uh, with the introduction of Zoom, uh, can the size restriction and recognizing Yiddish classes be modified, thus making it more likely to survive? Uh, that's our hope. Um, I'm not teaching Yiddish specifically right now, um, but I think for, I know that for universities that have smaller pools of students, that that is the hope, that they can bring more people together. In my university with Hebrew, we've experienced a decline in Hebrew enrollments, and I'm directly involved with this because I'm directing the Center for Jewish Studies. Uh, our, we're introducing Hebrew all levels online as an experiment with the permission of the university because we believe that we can draw on the larger North American pool of people to take Hebrew. Uh, and I believe the same is possible with Yiddish. The, the growth of the YIVO summer program, you know, YIVO summer program was huge in the 1990s. You'd have 100 or more students. Then it began to decline sometime in the early 2000s or mid 2000s. With the pandemic, the number of students enrolled in the, the Weinreich summer program has grown huge again. There's very clear that people want Yiddish. It just happens to be that these people are not necessarily undergraduates or the undergraduates of the typical undergraduate age of 18 to 21. Uh, Yiddish is something that people often come to when they get a bit older in life. 
When I say older, it's even maybe 23. But it's, you know, it's not what the 18-year-old necessarily gravitates to. Um, and with that, knowing that, the, the opportunities, the audience for Yiddish, Yiddish, I think, is absolutely huge. And we already see the number of online programs, the Working Circle, Yibo, and so on, they've all benefited from this. Absolutely. Uh, I think the numbers at uh, Worker Circle and Evo right now for in students enrolled taking the language is 400 each. So that's that's pretty pretty. Yeah. Good. No, it's amazing. Yeah. And, I mean, the internet and, in general has been a fantastic boom for Yiddish. You go onto the Yiddish Falsch page or any of the other Yiddish pages. You know the people who find each other who share interests. Whom you know I could talk about if if af if with you. <laughs> Now I can talk about it with 700 people. Right, exactly. Who care about it passionately. Yes. Um, um, do you have a, a source of um, uh, recommended uh, books and articles related to today's talk? I mean, uh, besides my book. Huge, huge. Yes, when is, my your new book, book. when is your book coming out? Coming. It's not coming out yet. I'm still editing the manuscript. There'll be a, another couple of years. Um, but um, you can, uh, my published articles, if you go to um, academia.edu and look me up, you'll find some of my articles about Yiddish studies in the university and about Nazi scholars of Yiddish. I would recommend reading Jeff Chandler's new book, Yiddish, a biography, which talks about the, you know, to some extent about, well, it talks about all sorts of stuff. It's just a fascinating book. I just highly recommend it. But part of it deals with the history of Yiddish studies. Uh, um, Elia um, Eldada, I'm going to get her first name wrong right now, of course, and I know this person and I'm embarrassed to say it, but a scholar at the Hebrew University has written a fantastic book uh, called, um, I'm, I'm making the book, the title Yiddish. It's a, a guy who speaks Yiddish, a guy who speaks in Yiddish. Uh, it's, it's, it's a book about uh, pre-modern Yiddish studies in German academia. Uh, not just linguists, but also what we, you know, anthropological interest in Jews uh, amongst German academics in the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, so I would, I would, you know, I'd, I'd start there. Uh, and of course, there are, there are many other works, but I would start there. Great. Uh, I think we have time for just one, one more question, which there were some questions about Yiddish taught uh, at not a college level, but uh, younger age, yeah, in, in elementary school, high school, uh, uh, there's a little bit of that in in Toronto, maybe that's happening. Um, a little bit of that is happening in uh, in Israel, where it's taught in middle school. There's an opportunity. Do you have any any commentary about that? Obviously, this yeah. Is I mean, look, I have something to say about almost everything. <laughs> it's a, it's a, uh, uh, there is Ayel Yada, thank you, and Nikki Halper, and yeah, a guy who speaks Yiddish, thank you very much. It's in the chat for anybody who's interested. Um, here in Toronto, the Bialik School teaches Yiddish, uh, beginning, I think, in grade three, which is third grade for all of my speakers of American English, right? Uh, um, but it's taught, you know, often Spitzmesser. It's, it's, it's really, um, it's a drop in the bucket. It's... Um, and there's every year it seems to get a bit less. Um, Bialik has an ideological commitment to teaching Yiddish. It's a labor Zionist school, but it's not a major part of the curriculum. Uh, and this is one of the few schools in North America that still teaches Yiddish to any extent. You know, the children learn to recite some things and to sing some songs, 
but they don't come out Yiddish speakers. And that's unfortunately, I would say the situation in most of these programs. There are some exceptions. I think in Melbourne, I think one of the schools there actually has a serious commitment to Yiddish. Um, and there might be a few other ones, but uh, in general, I think that's unfortunately, that's the, that's the situation. Um, you know, Yiddish is a, they, they try to impart a love and respect for Yiddish to young children, but- uh, That's already you know, a lot. That's already yeah, a lot. Yeah, and that's a start. Yeah. I think the Israeli high school programs are more serious. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't really have that kind of thing in North America. Um, I think I think we've run out of time. Uh, lots of lots of kudos, uh, as you can see, in um, uh, in the in the chat. Maybe when you have a chance to look at the at the Q A Q and A. I'm sorry we couldn't get to some very provocative questions, but kind of off topic, um, you know, uh, related about the practicalities of of of, uh, of Yiddish. Uh, workbooks and and so on, um, you know, post-war, but we we I hope touched enough upon this subject, uh, which uh, was beautifully beautifully um, uh, I was going to say unplecked for us, yeah, beautifully uh, delivered to us uh, by Kalman, and uh, and it looks like everyone had a, a, had an enjoyment of it as well. So, yeah, I just like to say that, first of all, thank you, everybody. Secondly, um, I can't read, unfortunately, all of your comments in the chat. Um, I can't talk and read at the same time. Right, just right. It's a lot of comments. But if anyone <laughs> has specific questions for me about, you know, someone I saw asked about Hebrew at York or anything else that, you know, I can help you with, just write to me at my address, kweiser at yorku.ca, and I'll be happy, you know, I'll do my best to answer your questions. Kweiser at yorku.ca York yeah someone eric cam in north york posted it thank you very much eric cam ah there okay you have it posted twice great yeah. okay so ashenem dank everyone for attending uh and although this is the last of the of the series with uh professor weiser uh we have more to come in april and may and so forth so please look for additional mailings thank you Thank you, everyone. Thank